This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're having a yarn with Mick Wettenall. Mick operates a bustling family farm, Weemabar, alongside his wife, Kirsty, and father-in-law, George, near Trangy. Their diverse mixed farming business encompasses both summer and winter cropping, alongside holistically managed grazing of sheep and cattle. In this episode, we'll hear about Mick's many passions, from breeding great cattle, building resilient pasture systems, to his current focus, soil sequest, where together with his mate, he's trying to harness the power of healthy soils and fungi to boost soil carbon storage within his soils. And as you'll hear, Mick doesn't mind a challenge or two and brings that can-do attitude to any opportunities that may improve the sustainability of his farm and his business. Local Land Services District Vet, Jill Kelly, sat down for a coffee and a chat with Mick overlooking the mighty Macquarie River at Weemabar. Hi Mick, I'm sitting here today with you, Mick Wentonall at Weemabar, which is a property between Narramah and Trangy. Can you tell me a bit about Weemabar? Weemabar's 9,000 acres, it's my wife's family place, they've been here sort of since the early 1900s, where, like I said, 9,000 acres. Some irrigation as well, we grow a bit of cotton, cereals and uh, beef cattle. I've been coming here on and off for the last sort of 10 years and I've seen a fair bit of change over those 10 years in terms of what Weemabar runs and how you run your enterprise. Tell me how you see it changing over that time. When I first came out here, we had a shorthorn stud and a commercial herd. Since then, we've sort of changed that. We're no longer running the stud um, and have sort of moved into into Angus cattle and away from the shorthorns. Why the change from shorthorns to Angus? It came down to marketability. The last three years, as you know, have been extremely dry and, and we've been trying to get rid of cattle when the when the market was was tough enough and and I you know had an agent come out um, when we had the Angus cattle and and shorthorn cattle and and told me well I can sell the blacks but I'm going to struggle with the with the shorthorns and that's probably the main driver for the for the change we're trying to moderate our you know, herd a bit get more efficient sort of animals I feel that the beef industry's sort of can get a bit carried away with uh, focusing on on one area and individual animal performance when we need to look at it a, at a per hectare scenario. So, yeah, that's what we're trying to do, trying to breed more moderate frame cows that don't require as much area. Yeah, so you're doing that by genetics and nutrition or are you focusing on one particular way to engineer your beef herd? Matching your stocking rate, your carrying capacity. I mean, that's... What we really try to try to stick to and, you know, navigate, I suppose, seasons, continually adjusting numbers. And I suppose the, yeah, the move away, we're trying to get less core herd um, and more trade cattle just to make us a little bit more manoeuvrable, I suppose, when, when the dry times come, that we've got cattle that we can quit 
quite easily and quickly. Yeah, so you're not locked into maintaining breeders and feeding and, and flogging country and things like that? Yeah, that's right. The more complex our system is, the more it can simplify our resource base. So, And I think we need to work it back the other way and sort of simplify the system so that we can create that complexity in the in the resource base. So like for a stud, you, you might be single sire mating four or five herds and that you need a lot of paddocks to do that and managing rest and and all that stuff when we're trying to drive that diversity in the in the paddock it just makes it harder yeah so you've moved sort of from a real set stock traditional farming method into more of a rotational or a cell system you've got a lot more paddocks than you used to yeah definitely i mean i've did uh holistic management sort of training a long time ago came back from that you know split up into a lot smaller paddocks and have been trying to manage i suppose our stock density with polywires and, and things like that, really trying to drive that um, stock density and ground cover. And so did you come home from your holistic management course, just you drunk the Kool-Aid and it was all really exciting? Or did you come home and think, oh yeah, really exciting, but you know some of the old ways are good too? Have you sort of blended some holistic management with some old traditional ways or how have you approached it? Yeah, definitely. I, I think the whole holistic movement can get a bit of a bit of a bum rap can tend to have a bit of the holier than thou approach a lot of merit to it I think it's a lot about feed budgeting and things like that and knowing how much feed you have in your paddock is you know it's really it's really useful grazing charts and now moving across to digital grazing charts you know these are really really handy tools that uh, really come into their own you know especially when it gets dry I went out with you the other day into the paddock and we looked at a paddock, I think you said it was like a bit hard and you'd planted some radishes there to try to help that. Can you tell me the story behind that paddock? We've been using cover crops, I suppose, for four or five years now and trying to use key species to do specific jobs. And I find one of our biggest limitations in our grazing systems is compaction. So we're using particular species like tillage radish that put a big tuber into the ground and break open that compaction layer. So instead of having to go in there and tear it up with steel like we would normally, trying to remediate that compaction by using plants. So just low cost systems that don't owe you a lot of money in those grazing crops that can have a desired effect and have you, I suppose, in better shape to go build that resource. One of the more holistic ways of looking at it is that you could have spelled that paddock for ages to try to improve compaction, but you felt that the tuber method was going to get you there quicker. So you sort of plowed it up and put the tubers in. A lot of the regen ag line of thinking is that you never use a plough or sometimes, you know, a plough is really necessary. So I'm not afraid to use it if it's all about the goal that you're trying to achieve. So with that country that we ploughed, that old grazing country, and then had the multi-species mix in there with the heavy balance of the tillage radishes, getting that framework back in the soil to, again, hold that soil apart and drive that microbial diversity. Speaking of that microbial diversity, I know you spend a lot of time thinking about soil health and soil carbon, and you've got a bit of a project happening at the moment. Can you tell me about that? Or is it's, that a secret? 
it's not a secret. No, it's a <laughs> it's a long story. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> As I said, I've always had this focus on how we could build carbon in agricultural systems. I'd been working with uh, an agronomist, Guy Webb at Forbes, for a number of years trying to do that specifically about how do we build carbon in our cropping systems. Yeah, it was at the Carbon Conference in Dubbo in 2013 where Peter McGee was the last speaker at the end of a uh, real long conference and, and Guy listened to him speak and he rang me on the way home and felt like he'd been handed the keys to the universe. This particular work they'd done at, at Sydney Uni was, uh, we believe, sort of really unearthed the actual mechanism for how carbon's built long-term in soil. So Guy got him out to speak at Grenfell and I came over and listened to him and it was it was really revolutionary. Yeah, it was a real aha moment. Yeah, and so that would have essentially mean that farmers could plant crops, different, lots of different varieties and species of plants and crops, and at the same time really fix carbon into a very stable form, therefore helping the environment. We have a bit of a... A blockage, I think, in agriculture, thinking it, it's one or the other. It's this sort of binary choice that we have. We can look after our country. We can push our country and, and make money. And there's, the more carbon we have in soil, the more efficient it's going to be and, you know, the uh, more profitable you're going to be. But this is the struggle that farmers have. We're working with a lot of soils are sub 1% soil carbon and they're, they're just vastly inefficient. Yeah, the more that I do these podcasts though, I haven't selected the people that I'm interviewing on any specific criteria, but the more I talk to them, it becomes blatantly apparent that the so-called greenies and the farmers are exactly the same people. Most farmers are very strong environmentalists and are doing their best to look after the country. Farmers are really good at taking on on new ideas. The most common way farmers will take on new ideas is by looking through the fence. So, we've got to be able to demonstrate these ideas to farmers, you know, you get onto Facebook and it'll tell you that all you've got to do is do what one bloke does in North Dakota and grow cover crops and, you know, everything's hunky-dory. It's not as simple as that. We need to devise new sort of systems as well as technologies that can enable farmers to be able to do this job for us. And who have you worked alongside and with that's inspired you or that has helped progress your knowledge and your work in this sort of innovation sphere? I suppose it's been a real journey since 2013 and met quite a few people that have been working in this sort of same field. I think it's the new frontier of agriculture, it really is. I think we're going to see, we'll get to a point where we'll see carbon will be another enterprise that we see on farm. It'll actually be a line item on a balance sheet that's really exciting because at the minute we're not getting uh, remunerated for that so it's the first thing to be compromised it's sort of like you're going to have x amount of carbon on your balance sheet and your 2000 dorpers and it's sort of like well we know that we, we get what, paid for the dorpers yeah exactly but if we know there's a there's actually a price on that carbon it's an okay well i'm gonna have to quit some of these dorpers because it's going to impact my carbon trade so and it, that may bridge the gap between an environmentally conscious consumer base and what we do out here too, do you think, may actually help sell agricultural products? We're just getting to a point now where the consumer is starting to realise what's going on. And I mean, climate change, I've been a, a massive advocate for action on climate change. 
I really see that agriculture is going to have to play a massive role in climate mitigation. For us to be able to do that, we've got to have market-driven solutions and it's about a conscious consumer now that can say, okay, that's the only thing that's going to drive the change is having the markets that farmers can produce a, a product specifically for that market. And do you think that agriculture is well enough set up with marketing bodies and industry bodies and the sorts of organisations that do promote our products and what we do on farm at a global scale to promote that when the time comes? I think all that will evolve probably with time as we go. Like I say, it's a, it's a real opportunity now, I see, for everyone in business to differentiate yourself in the marketplace. It's a really exciting time to be in agriculture because now we've got the consumer's attention before people weren't really paying a lot of attention. Do you keep in touch with other really progressive, innovative people on Twitter or Facebook? How do you connect? I've only just recently joined the ASP group. It's an agronomy group, sort of like-minded growers that are doing similar things like I'm doing. I reckon you've only got 30 seasons in you as a farmer and you can only learn so much in, in one year. So I think any opportunity where you can band together with other growers and share information can only be a good thing. So we've got lots of different people in lots of different parts of the country that are like-minded to me, using a much sort of softer approach, I suppose, but really, you know, profit-focused and really starting to nut out some of these new ideas coming out of the States and just how they're fitting here in, a, in Australia in specific regions is critical. We have to learn. It's really regionally specific systems that we need to develop and and that's where it's good that we're getting this group learning where, you know, you get no point buying a lesson that someone's already paid money for, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely. It must be really stimulating to talk to other like-minded people, but I think that's so important is that, like, bringing that cutting-edge technology home to make it work in your environment is part of the challenge. It is part of the challenge, and it's not having any limitations to your thinking, I suppose. It's about failing on a massive area, but good to be trialling little things in corners of the place where where it doesn't have that economic impact. But I think there's just so much we're learning now. We know such a fraction of what goes on in soil and what if we're really finding key drivers is just is biodiversity and where our no-till model, although it was a real step in the right direction and got away from ploughing and that, sort of fell short still over the long term we've realised that we're losing carbon less slowly than the old method of ploughing and burning and and whatever which was really quite demoralising I suppose with that whole no-till movement but now we've got a whole other movement coming through now where we're trying to get more biodiversity in our farming systems and be it in cover crops prior to cash crops or you know our grazing crops getting two or three more species in a grazing crop as opposed to just giving those animals a bit more of a choice about what they can eat. So tell me about one of the cereal crops you've planted this year. What else have you put in that mix? I have done a couple of different mixes, but a lot of a couple of clovers. So balanza clover, arrowleaf clover, purple top radish, tillage radish, grazing canola. Again, having that second generation grazing canola so it's cheap it's not $30 a kilo it's just farmer retained seed and basically letting whatever else came so I had quite a bit of oats that came through it black oats and and whatever so again just trying to 
keep the cost down. I didn't put any furt on that country at all. Doesn't owe me a lot. And like I said, it's about having yourself in better shape to go next year. Whereas the old model, uh, well, the industrial model, I suppose, of heavy rates of synthetic fertilisers, that frog boiling in the pot sort of scenario where it's sort of, you don't really see it, but every year you need that little bit more each time. And we've got to get away from those systems. We've got to have systems that can still make us money, but build resilience year in, year out. And we've got to get the science around it, you know. Like there's a product that came out only a few years ago. It's a really good example from one of the major multinational agrochemical mobs put out a broadleaf herbicide. The research and development for that was $500 million. So that's one herbicide that kills a specific set of broadleafs in crop. And I think, wow, imagine we had the same amount of money that could actually go towards developing you know, regionally specific farming systems, how quickly we would learn stuff. Because it's, we just need the data. We need to know why it's working. And it's the whole thing with the regenerative ag movement. It's all good and I'm a big fan, but it's sort of like this build it and they'll come idea, you know. And I think, why leave it to chance? Let's get in there and find out what are those key species that are doing the work and making sure, just like the nitrogen inoculum, ensure that, that the right species are in there in the right amounts to get the reliable outcome every time we do it. Not at the expense of the rest of the microbiome, but just making sure that they're in there. It's like if you use the analogy, if you want to win the Melbourne Cup, you don't head down to the pony club and look for a horse. You go to the yearling sales, you know. And there's, and again, the nitrogen inoculum, there's native rhizobium out there that sequester a fraction of what the species that have been bred to do the specific job for the specific legumes we use in agriculture. Let's, so let's do that for carbon as well. I just think it's really inspiring that you are just a normal farmer, Mick, really, when it all boils down, but you're doing such amazing progressive things. And I think it just goes to show, you know, regular farmers are capable of and can do. It's really cutting edge and it's potentially going to change the face of agriculture. It's amazing. A lot of the times... Research is done behind closed doors in a uni somewhere in a white lab coat, but this is actually real research on real properties and obviously with the focus of delivering it to other real farmers. Guy and I actually laugh about it. Uh, I think it takes a significant amount of naivety to think you're ever going to pull anything like this off. And the fact that we've just raised $10 million is quite comical, <laughs> actually. It's the people that have come along for the ride you know we've picked up some really good quality people that are inspired by what it is that we're trying to do and and want to be a part of that there's this new model of business that we need to develop that we're demonstrably making a difference that is going to get supported by conscious consumers and it's the businesses that are out there that are making a significant difference are going to be winning in the end if you saw the project all coming to fruition and working perfectly, when do you think this technology may possibly be, you know, available to put on seed in any given sowing period? We're aiming for summer plant 22. They're pretty, Whoa, that's soon. That is very soon. We're going to have a prototype inoculum going in the ground next year. Yeah, we should have something something by then. And so just for the simple vet, tell me about the prototype. So you measure soil carbon pre-planting, you put the inoculant on your plant and then you measure soil carbon afterwards. Is that as simple as the experiment is or is there more to it than that? No, that's pretty much it. That's how the work was done initially in the lab. 
and how they measured the because you have to obviously eliminate the plant contribution for the carbon that you've got to isolate the fungi so hyphal gauze is what's used in pots to measure so only the fungi can get through the gauze and the plant roots can't so you're measuring the carbon deposited outside the hyphal gauze the numbers that they got at Sydney Uni, that was the mind-blowing part. And this has been, I think, what's really blocked the project going forward. It's this long-held belief that carbon's really slow to build and, and hard, hard to build, and it's hard to keep. Whereas this work showed, no, you can actually build it quite quickly. So, I don't know, they say agriculture, you know, that farmers have been peasants for hundreds of years for a reason. It's, we're at the end of the line. So, you start making a bit of money for a while and then the people above you and in the middle and at the end sort of soon find it out and take it from you. And that's where really keen with the not-for-profit initiative that we have. It's working about, okay, how do we build carbon in soils? What are the systems? How do we trade it? We need to ensure that the farmers end up with a lion's share of that carbon trade, that we don't get found out along the way and we get to keep that because that's what's going to make or break whether we can do this or not, and that's where remunerating farmers for building carbon just so critical. We've got to ensure that happens. And so, not only might their profitability be revolving around kilos of beef or kilos of lamb produced or wool or crop, it might be about carbon on a balance sheet as well. We need a way to reliable way to build it, which we're working on, reliable way to measure it. And then, who knows what that looks like? You know, technology moves so quickly, it could be probes in a paddock that comes back to your smartphone. You know, it's the exponentiality of technology, isn't it, that, that we're seeing. And that's what I think will drive the next growth, I think, in property prices will be this whole carbon deal. There's a paddock between here and town. It's a big, mainly farming property. And I've been watching the paddock over the fences. I'd go to town for the last sort of five years and it got long fallowed in 2016. So missed that bumper year and then didn't get rain to sow on in 17. So here he is, last time that, you know, you got country on the banks of the Macquarie River, hasn't returned a penny, only cost money um, for the last five years. And, and we are seeing it to the importance of animals in the system. And that's what I'm really trying to do with our systems is get that stock density back in there and grazing. There is such an important part of the driving biological function, but it's not necessarily 100 acre paddock, stick the trough in the corner and walk away for two months. That gives us all sorts of issues. So it's about trying to manage those animals in a way that can drive that soil function and, and that biodiversity. And like I say, have yourself in better shape to go next year, not deplete your asset. Well said. So thanks very much for the chat, Mick. Look forward to seeing what happens on Weema Bar from here on in. Right, no drama. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Nerily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.